0: And let's show our appreciation of those children's workers. Amen. We appreciate you. Well, good morning again, church. I uh, would love for you to open your Bible, if you have one, to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. For the last couple of weeks now, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Acts in a particular way. Uh, we are revisiting these foundational narratives, looking for resources, insights, uh, corrections, and encouragements that can help us rebuild and renew the church on the other side. For the last uh, two weeks, the first two weeks of the series, we were looking at the preamble. Preamble, of course, means the things that had to happen before the main action of the story takes place. Preamble is about framing and setup. So we talked about the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus had to happen first. Jesus had to be seated. Jesus had to be crowned. Uh, It is the victorious conqueror that is able to give out gifts. It is the reigning monarch who rewards and elevates those who've been loyal to him. And then last week, we talked about the company of the apostles and how it had to be made whole. A gap had been created by the apostasy of Judas, And so a 12th apostle had to be selected and affirmed. The church was to present itself as the renovated and restored Israel, and so that symmetry and pattern needed to be preserved. So with all these things in place now, the main action can take place, and indeed it does here in the story that we're going to look at this morning. What we have here is basically the hinge between part one and part two of the Jesus story. Part one was about what Jesus did in the flesh, and part two is, is about what Jesus did and continues to do through the church. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes? and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we've done for the last couple of weeks, I just wanna take a very straightforward approach this morning. We're gonna ask and by God's grace, hopefully answer five simple questions. Number one, why the day of Pentecost? Number two, why wind and fire? Number three, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Number four, why do they begin to speak in other languages? And number four, or number five, what does the day of Pentecost have to do with us today? So we'll begin with the first question there. Why the day of Pentecost? Obviously, this day was important, um, but why? Now, of course, when, when we hear that phrase, the day of Pentecost, we immediately think of this event that we just read. We, we think of the tongues of fire. We think of, of the apostles immediately beginning to speak in other languages. That's what we think. But the day of Pentecost had a significance already on the day that these events occurred. Jesus wanted the Holy Spirit to fall on the church on this particular day. He told them to wait in Jerusalem for a particular time. So why? What's going on with this particular day? Well, the day of Pentecost, as you may know, if you're a a Bible reader, is also known as the Feast of Weeks. And it was essentially the Thanksgiving of the Old Testament. So it was a harvest festival, very similar uh, to what we're going to have here in Canada in just a week. It was a a time for giving thanks. It was a time for uh, considering all the things that God had given. So it was a harvest festival. And then later in the intertestamental period, so intertestamental means after the closing of the Old Testament, but before the start of the New Testament, there's a couple centuries in there. In those few centuries, this festival also became associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so it would seem that those are the twin themes that Jesus wanted us to associate with the giving of the Spirit. He is giving the Spirit now at this particular time on this particular occasion because now is the time for harvest, first and foremost. Remember, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this is God answering that prayer. And of course, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost does in fact lead to a great harvest as we'll talk about in a couple of weeks Uh, Peter is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to preach the first sermon ever in the New Testament church, and 3,000 people are going to get saved and baptized in a single day. And those people, of course, represent the first fruits of the Gentile harvest, first fruit from among the nations, because so many of these people come from among the nations. We'll be talking about that in just a few weeks. So we've got a great harvest theme going on, and then also there is this connection to the law. Now, modern-day evangelicals tend to see a separation between the Spirit and the law that is completely foreign to the Bible. In fact, one of the great prophecies of the New Testament, of the New Covenant era that is in the Old Testament, has God promising, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the Old Testament actually depicts the giving of the Holy Spirit in terms of an internal law, to give the Holy Spirit. This is a parallel passage to some of those other great passages which talk about God putting his spirit in our hearts. So to speak of the spirit in our hearts is to speak of the law in our hearts. And Luke seems to be saying here, this this is that. So listen, I want you to try to nail that into your mind lock that down. Sometimes we hear things and it's fun to connect the dots between Old Testament and New Testament and go, oh, I see. I see how this lands there. And that's all very interesting. But we come to church to do more than be educated. We should come to church. We sit under the word of God to be transformed, to be reformed, right? And so I want you to hear that because actually I would never do this, but if, if you were to take a typical evangelical and put them in a room and chain them to a chair and shine a bright light on their face, obviously that would be illegal. I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying. If you were to do that and you were to say, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to say something and you have to say the first thing that comes to your mind, right? And you were to shine a bright light into their eye and say, Holy Spirit, what's the first thing that would come out of their mouth? Almost certainly they would say, signs and wonders. That's what we associate nowadays instinctively with the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to see is how hard Jesus is working here to make a different association. And, and he is working. This is a scripted event. That's not to say it didn't happen. That's not, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Jesus very carefully orchestrates this event. Remember, he said, I want you to stay in the city. He, he wants this to happen on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because he, wa- he wants, when you know, when that light is shone into our eyes, And somebody says, Holy Spirit, he wants the association to be harvest and law. Meaning he wants us to think of the Holy Spirit in terms of power for evangelism and help in personal obedience. Isn't that interesting? Can I just ask you a question? I just want you to think about this. Can you imagine how much better things would be in the church today if we thought of the Holy Spirit primarily in terms of help in evangelism and help with our personal obedience? As opposed to thinking signs and wonders. Now, I'm, I'm not discounting signs and wonders. We'll, we'll be talking about that and the role that that plays. I'm just saying Jesus is scripting this event, coordinating events, so that the primary association in our mind has to do with harvest and law, to be helped in evangelism, to be inclined in the direction of God's holiness. That is really the help that we need, more so, I think, than than most of us tend to realize. All right, that leads us to our second question. Why wind and fire? Well, in the Old Testament, wind and fire are almost always associated with what are called theophanies, or appearances of God. So, for example, 1 Kings 19.11, the Lord told the prophet Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain, Mount Sinai. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold... The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So a great wind actually preceded the coming of the Lord. Fire, of course, also is a very common symbol, commonly associated with the presence of the Lord. We think first and foremost of the story of the burning bush. You remember that, Exodus 3.2? It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So the burning bush becomes the locus for that theophany, for that appearance of God. The voice of God actually comes out of of the bush, it says in verse 4. God called to him out of the bush. God spoke to him from the fire. So fire represents the presence of God and the voice of God. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Pentecost now, the Feast of Pentecost, the The Old Testament feast is also now associated with the giving of the law, which once again happened on Mount Sinai. That's what the Bible says about that, Exodus 19, 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. In the New Testament, when they look back on that experience in Exodus 19, They say it it involved a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, storm, fire and wind. These are the signs that are typically associated with the appearance of God, with the presence of the Lord, and with the giving of the law in particular. And so when all of these phenomena reappear in Acts chapter 2, these are Bible-reading folks, so they're not missing the symbolism. They understand what this means. The message would seem to be that because of the gift of the Spirit, every believer now is a burning bush and the church is the mountain of God. Praise the Lord. That leads us to our third question. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We see that in verses three to four. It says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the event that corresponds to the promise made by Jesus in Acts 1.8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. We can trace this event even further back, actually to the prophecy made by John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, well, obviously, this is that. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire is this experience. It is the Holy Spirit coming on the church and filling the church. The covenant community didn't have that in Matthew 3. They didn't have that in Acts 1. But here in Acts 2, they receive that. They are baptized, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is an absolute game changer. This is what the Old Testament prophets were looking for. This morning, I don't know how many of you are still doing the RMM Bible reading plan. I hope many of you are. It seems like many of you are. Uh, It's a good discipline. The reason, I mean, there's lots of different ways to read through the Bible in a year, but it's just fun to be able to assume on a morning like this that at least many of you were reading the same thing this morning. Uh, This morning you read um, 1 Kings 4, 1 Kings 4 and 5. There's theological significance to that passage. Uh, In 1 Kings 4, there's a description of the Old Testament manifestation of the kingdom of God under Solomon as kind of the high water mark of Old Testament history. So if you, that's the passage in 1 Kings 4 where it says, you know, and Solomon was established. He, he possessed the land as, you know, all the way to the river of Egypt, all the way to the Euphrates, meaning he had all the land that God ever promised to give to the people. It said that the people were so numerous, they were like the stars of the heavens and the sea on the seashore. Remember that? And it said that they were so prosperous and peaceful, everybody ate the fruit of his own vineyard and... and Enjoyed the fruit of his own vine. Which is what? Which is a way of saying, for just a moment anyway, for just a moment, the people possessed all the promised blessings of God. They had their own nation. They had peace. They had prosperity. They had a good and wise king. I mean, for a moment, for a moment you could be forgiven if you thought, that's heaven right there, isn't it? That's that's the kingdom of God. Imagine, imagine you've got your own property, you've got your own estate, it's producing enough wine and, and food for you and for your family and for all your guests. There's no hint of war. You're not worried that any of your children are gonna be conscripted and, and wasted in some useless international intrigue. No, 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 you've got peace, you've got prosperity, you've got a wise king who encourages you and equips you in your walk with the Lord. How's that sound? Anybody vote for that? That's the high water mark in the Old Testament. But, of course, you know, if you've read the Bible before, you know where the story goes, don't, don't you? You zoom out, and you look at the story of the Old Testament from there, from that point to the end. And, of course, the end is the people have been crushed by exile. They've Through one bad king after another, they've become idolatrous, and, and they, just, they lose the Lord, and they be, they're crushed in exile. The nation ceases to exist. And then all of a sudden, you've got this little ragtag group back in the land, but they're completely powerless under the boot of the Persians. And you think, wow, how did it all fall apart? They lost everything. For a brief moment, they had everything, and they lost it. Why? And the, the point is, like when you zoom back and consider that story as a whole, sometimes in our Bible readings, we lose the forest for the trees. We're reading this really interesting story, and we admit, what's the point of the narrative as a whole? The point of the narrative as a whole is that God's people cannot hold or maintain the blessings of God apart from the Holy Spirit of God. That is literally the conclusion that the Old Testament prophets come to by the end of the Old Testament. They look and they're like, how did we lose it all? How could we be so stupid? How could we turn away from the God who gave us everything? How could we have all of this good and then leave it all behind? How could we be unfaithful to a God who literally gave us everything he promised? How could we be intoxicated and attracted to the gods of the nations whom God displaced before us? God's way is obviously better. His way is obviously more powerful. Why would we turn from this to that? And the answer is, because we're messed up. And we're whacked and warped. And even when we think we're walking straight, we're not. And so, yeah, we ended up in ruin. And so... The conclusion of the prophets at the end of that timeline is God is going to have to heal us and transform us at a fundamental level. It's not going to be enough for him to spank us every once in a while. We push through the spank. It's not going to be enough for him to put us on timeout. God put us on timeout for 70 years, 10 minutes back into the land. We're sinning again. No, God's going to have to heal us at a fundamental level. Listen, listen to this prophecy from the end of the storyline. I will, this is a prophet speaking about what God's gonna do. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Oh, wouldn't that be good? Can you imagine if we only loved and valued the things that we should love and value? Oh man, what a game changer that would be. Verse 26, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone. Wouldn't that be good? From your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. That is a game changer. That's what they were looking, they said, this is our only home. We had everything God ever promised to give us. We had it for a moment and we lost it all. We lost it all because we're stupid, we're sinful, we love things we shouldn't, we go chasing after things that are gonna kill us. We need to be healed and reformed at the cellular level. And here in Acts, the Bible is very clearly saying, this is that. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit that has come to bring new life to a valley of dry bones. This is that. I love what John Stott says here. He says, it, it," meaning the day of Pentecost, this falling of the Holy Spirit, it was the final act of the saving ministry of Jesus Before the parousia, that means his return. He who was born into our humanity, that's that's the first act, right? Lived our life. Oh, there's the second act. Died for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Those are the five things we always talk about, right? The five things Jesus did for our salvation. Oh, it's actually five plus one. Now sent his spirit to his people to constitute them, his body, and to work out in them what he had won for them. Isn't that good? Have you ever thought of the Holy Spirit as the last thing Jesus did to save your soul? Man, that's so good. The last piece of the puzzle, so that we can be again the people we were created and saved to be. Thanks be to God. Now, that raises an interesting question. I don't know if it would have raised that question 100 years ago, I don't know if it would have raised this question 500 years ago. I know that it raises the question today, so we might as well hit it. Is this a once-and-for-all thing or an ongoing thing? It's a good question. I, there's a sense in which the answer is both. There's a, Pentecost is a once-and-for-all event, just like the Incarnation was a once-and-for-all event. Jesus doesn't re-enter history every 500 years to help us out, right? Incarnation was a one-time event. The cross was a one-time event. Empty tomb was a one-time event. Ascension was a one-time event. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, in this sense, was a one-time event. And yet, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing. It happens to all true believers the moment they are united to Christ. And yet, it's also an ongoing thing, a perpetual thing. How do I know that? Why am I saying that? Well, because the Apostle Paul commands that. In Ephesians 5.18, he says, do not get drunk with wine. By the way, do you notice the do not get drunk with wine thing? That was the last verse. The, the, that I read in, in, the, in the morning's reading, it says some people actually criticized them for, said, oh, wow, these guys are just drinking, they're morning drinking, right? It's, Paul is grabbing on that. He must have been familiar with that fragment of the story, obviously. And he's grabbing on that, and he's saying, listen, yes, there are various things that can control us, right? Don't experiment with this, but I'm saying, you go home and you drink a quart of whiskey, it will have an influence on your behavior. Uh, you'll be arrested. I I did a ride-along once uh, with a couple of the... uh, the, Well, a couple arranged it, but it was with one actual OPP officer. And I came to the firm conclusion that if we could get rid of, like, hard liquor and drugs from the city of Aurelia, one retired cop could manage this entire town. Every single crime... I I didn't participate in, but I witnessed. uh, Every single crime. It was some drunk guy. And you're like, what? Anyway, that's not even the point. The point is... That's one way to control and influence your behavior. And Paul's saying, well, listen, I don't recommend that. Here, you know what I recommend? I recommend every day you drink a quart of the Holy Spirit. That's what I recommend. Be ever filled. It's, it's a present imperative that be ever being filled, which means he's saying, keep doing it, keep doing it. Be ever being filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though Pentecost is a one, once and for all event. So. It's a once-and-for-all event, but just like we need to keep going back to the cross. The cross is a once-and-for-all event, isn't it? Jesus doesn't keep coming back and dying on the cross every 500 years because we keep adding up new sins. No, it's once-and-for-all. And yet, what are we going to do this morning? We're going to have communion, which is our regular return to the foot of the cross in a, in a spiritual sense. And so there's a once-and-for-allness here, yes, but there's also an ongoing perpetual thing. Just like we need to keep going back to the foot of the cross, so too we need to keep going back to the well of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you something, evangelical friends? I'm an evangelical. Hope you realize that. Like, uh, you know, we often, you'll hear me say all the time, you know, we evangelicals gotta pick up our game. I say that because I'm not a Lutheran, so I can't be preaching sermons telling them what's wrong with them. I'm preaching sermons talking about what's wrong with us. Right? And I'm just saying, as evangelicals, we gotta do better here. We talk all the time about going back to the foot of the cross, When was the last time you heard a conservative evangelical Bible-thumping church talk about going back to the well of the Holy Spirit? we got to do better. I love what the pillar commentary says here. Someone who is already filled with or full of the Holy Spirit can receive a a further filling or enabling for a particular ministry. Anybody need that? Any parent right now thinking, I don't know how to disciple my kids. I'm completely powerless. Good. Well, not good. Uh, Awful, horrifying, terrible, but good because it'll probably convince you you need to go back to the well of the Spirit. Does anybody here need a parenting anointing today? Grandparent anointing? Anybody, how about this? Anybody need an anointing for evangelism? Because I got news for you. It has got so hard out there to share the gospel. Anybody need help from the Holy Spirit on that? All right, let's keep going back to the well then, all right? Very helpful for us to see. There's something huge happening in this story, something epical, right? Game-changing, era-changing. Something that moves us from epic one to epic two, age one to age. This is a huge deal, What I want you to see. And and yet it's also a daily discipline. It's a daily reality. That brings us to our fourth important question. Why did they begin to speak in other languages? We see that in in verse four. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And that, that Greek word tongues can mean the little little thing there. Remember, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise? It also can mean languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I, I use the phrase speak in other languages because I think that's clearer for us than to say speak in tongues. Because when we hear that phrase today in 2022, I think we tend to hear it through the lens of the 20th century charismatic movement. So we think of ecstatic, unintelligible speech But that is absolutely not what is happening here. Here, the entire point of the story is that people heard the preaching of the gospel in their own language. Verse six says, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So whatever you wanna think about the 20th century charismatic movement, uh, whatever you wanna think about what, what seems to be going on in 1 Corinthians, and we can have that conversation and we will have this conversation at some point in this series. But it's absolutely imperative that you understand that what is happening here is not that. What is happening here is that the disciples are being supernaturally empowered to preach the gospel in in languages that they did not learn in the regular human way. That was the miracle that drew the crowd. Now, remember, there were Jews from all over. This is Pentecost, so this is one of the times when all the Jews from all around the Mediterranean world came to Jerusalem. Luke says, there were in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed. Are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? So that, that was the miracle. Now, uh, you may not know this, but uh, throughout the Mediterranean world, because of the, what was called the Diaspora, the Jews had been scattered and were living all around the Mediterranean world. At this point in history, a great many Jews actually were not fluent in their own language. Were not fluent in Hebrew. That's why we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was getting to the point where actually most of these people in this story spoke Hebrew about as well as our Catholic grandparents spoke Latin. Anybody old enough to have grandparents who went to Catholic mass and heard the the mass in Latin, which they understood snippets and bits of, but didn't understand the whole of it. That was the situation for these folks. They spoke a little bit of Hebrew, enough to basically follow along what was happening at these festivals, but not enough to really understand. It was not penetrating their hearts. And so here in this miracle, for the first time, they're hearing the gospel in their heart language. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And, And it's a miracle that communicates. This is global mission empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Pentecost was the Old Testament Thanksgiving. It was about gathering in the harvest. So like I said, the symbolism here would have been pretty hard to miss. John Stott again is helpful. He says, ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. Ever thought of that? At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So this is a symbolic event. I mean, it really happened, but it has been designed, it has been orchestrated in such a way that it communicates, it's saying something. What it's saying is that the Holy Spirit is gonna empower the church to reverse the curse of Babel and to gather humanity into one family under God through the person and work of Christ. Praise the Lord. That leads us to our final question. Why is the event of Pentecost important for us today? Now, obviously, it is important for us today. We are part of the same house that is here filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. Again, if you're doing the RMM thing, you read that this morning. The church is being built up, Paul says, on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So we're all part. As you come to Christ, then, you're living stone. That's 1 Peter 2, 4. As you as a living stone, the Holy Spirit is in you. So the Holy Spirit lives in the house, but also in every stone. So as as the Holy Spirit enters your heart and you bring yourself and let yourself be joined into this spiritual house, you are a part of now, you're building up on a house that has been filled and forever changed. So obviously it's important for us. Let Let me give you three reasons why I believe that is. The event of Pentecost is important for us today, first of all, because without the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of obeying God. That's the entire logic, again, behind all the Old Testament anticipations of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. and Be careful to obey my rules. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you a secret? At the end of the day, Human beings have always and will always do what they want. I mean, the weight loss companies understand that, right? That, that, that's why when you, know, when you get on the Peloton bike, they tell you a story. Don't you want to be the most handsome uh, man in your, in your company? Don't you want to be? They're trying to change what you want because you can't just yell at people. You can't just punish people. You can't just reward people. At the end of the day, if you don't change what people want, then you will not change how people behave that's why the gift of the Holy Spirit is a game changer, because the Holy Spirit comes inside and actually begins to shave, correct, reform, transform our desires. That's something that only the Holy Spirit can do in a lasting and sustainable way. The Holy Spirit is not about external control. I worry right now at the church. I think the church is reacting wrongly. I get it. Right now, I think we're looking out and we're seeing the absolute lawlessness of a lot of people who go by the name of Christian. Don't you just sometimes watch the news or some YouTube clip of someone in the States who says they're a Christian or they think they're a Christian just because they own a gun and a cowboy hat and they're doing something absolutely insane and they're doing it under the banner of Jesus. And you're just like, and it's not just down there. It's just that those folks end up on CNN and Fox News and everywhere else but it's all kinds of nonsense being done under the name of Christ. And don't you just think somebody needs to take these Christians in hand and whip them into shape? And aren't there lots of people out there who are ready to reintroduce the law in order to do that? And you're like, have you read the Old Testament? They had the law. How'd that work out for them? The law is not the answer. The Holy Spirit is the answer. You've got to change people's hearts. You've got to change people's desires. See, friends, the end goal is not just for you to obey God because you have to. You know, as a parent, like, I'll be honest with you, I'll take that as a halfway thing. Like, if you will just clean your room because I say so, I will take that. But you know what I really want in my heart of hearts? I really want you to understand, like, hey, I'm going to do this because it's good. It's good for me to live in a clean space. It's good for me. You know what I'm saying, right, as parents. Like when you say to your kids, bring the car home with a full tank of gas, I will take that if you just do it because I will thump you or you know hold back the car if you don't do it. But what I really want is for you to just understand, hey, this is just good citizenship. This is just me being a good partner. It's just, you know, playing. You know what I'm saying? It means so much more to the parent when you do it because you want to do it and you get it. And, and that's why you got to have patience and perseverance as a parent because you often don't get it until what? I don't know, Mom, when did I get it? 30? She probably said, I didn't get it yet. All I'm saying is this. The end goal for our father is not that we do good things or wise things because we're afraid of them or because we're afraid of the consequences. It's that we do it because we want to do it. That's what pleases the Lord. And, and that's why, incidentally, the order of operations in discipleship is really important. You don't ever say to folks, listen, why don't you get your life straightened up so that you can come back to church and, and get right with, them? no, 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 no. The reality is that you got to let the messy people in. you got to let the rebels in because it's actually, they need to get saved before they can clean up their lives, right? Because it's only with the help of the Holy Spirit that they can change. So that's why Pentecost matters because without the Holy Spirit filling the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls, we are hopeless, aimless, and subject to our fallen thoughts and desires. And then secondly, Pentecost is important because without the Holy Spirit, we can't get along with people from outside our group. Remember, we talked about how the day of Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. That's why the Apostle Paul was always talking about the importance of maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's only the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit that can bond diverse people into a single cohesive community. Can I tell you another secret? This one might offend you, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Without the Holy Spirit, human beings are instinctively racist and nationalistic. Now, you might disagree with that. You might be offended by that, but if you're offended by that, I'll be honest with you, all that tells me is you haven't read a great deal of history. If history is clear about anything, it is that human beings are essentially tribal in nature, fallen nature. We instinctively privilege and protect people from inside our circle, our family, our relatives, our tribe. And whenever we have power, we marginalize, oppress, and disadvantage people from outside our tribe. And that's not just true of white people, North Americans, and Europeans. That is true for people of all colors living everywhere on planet Earth throughout the ages. You can see this playing out on every continent going back through the long centuries and millennia back to Genesis chapter four. This is who we are as fallen human beings. And it is only when we are filled with the Holy Spirit that we are capable of overcoming that. Have you ever noticed how explicitly social, the fruit of the Spirit is described as being. The Apostle Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or in other words, everything you would need to live with diverse people inside a cohesive community. So that's why Pentecost is a really big deal. Because only when we are filled with the Spirit and continuing to grow the fruit of the Spirit are we capable of living in community with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth as we were created to do and as we are destined to do in the eternal kingdom. And then finally, I've saved the most obvious one for last, Pentecost is a really big deal because without the Holy Spirit, we can't begin, let alone complete, the Great Commission. Jesus basically locked the disciples in a room, lest they go out in the world without the Holy Spirit. He literally said, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, please, until you are clothed with power from on high. Right? The Holy Spirit is coming, and I would really rather that you didn't speak to anyone or tell anyone that you know me until he is here. Oh, there's wisdom in that, friends. And also comfort. Because God would never send us out without first building us up. He equips those he calls. He makes that which he loves. He empowers that which he decrees. And therefore, as we see in the story, there is no Christian ministry. There is no gospel preaching. There is no great commission without the gift, without the power, and without the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are to know that you know us, you know us in our weakness, and Lord, you have given us help that corresponds with our great needs, and we are thankful for the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we repent of the fact that we have not sought the Holy Spirit, sought the filling of the Holy Spirit in this place as we should. And so, Lord, we ask that that you would grow that desire and that discipline in our hearts, that we would daily lift our cups, lift our hands to the Spirit and say, oh Lord God, fill me afresh. Fill me afresh for the tasks that you have in mind for me today. Fill me afresh that I could love as I should, that I can desire and think as I ought so that I can speak to people in a fruitful and effective way. Come Holy Spirit, come and fill this house, this church, fill every heart here that has been cleansed By the blood of Jesus Christ, I ask in his precious name.